Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. This episode will be about order. Order is broadly defined as the arrangement or disposition of people or things in relation to each other according to a particular sequence, pattern, or method. But as we know, there are many different contexts in which this concept can be manifested. I think a good place to start this discussion would be around the idea of law. So traditionally, we think of law as a form of order that essentially formalizes the customs and behavior within a group. So laws make behavior predictable so that planning and coordination can occur. And I think it's really one of the fundamental building blocks of societies, because if you can if you can anticipate what your neighbor's going to do, you could, as a result, then coordinate together and focus on planning around those shared cultural norms. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that, you know, if we think about it and reference, uh, you know, our, our experience and our knowledge of, of history, then we can very clearly see that uh, law is at least intended to have this effect. Now, of course, there are uh, there are different kinds of laws. Um, at least, you know, if you define that word broadly, I would think it's very important to distinguish between written law uh, and you know more kind of informal cultural forms of law. Uh, I think that there is a quality to written law which um, sort of it does impose order. However, it also has a tendency to uh, be kind of unresponsive to changes in context. Uh, it's interesting to note that the famous Greek philosopher Socrates actually uh, was very critical of the invention of writing itself. And the way that he explained it was that he felt it had a degrading effect on human memory and that it changed the manner in which people memorize and sort of learn and understand information. And I think that that is uh, very important to keep in mind when considering the ways in which written laws specifically uh, kind of interact with the society. There's definitely a distinction that exists between written laws and cultural norms. I think Cultural norms are something that are just taught and internalized outside of writing and don't don't necessarily need that specific level to describe exactly what they mean. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a kind of a complex interplay, I think, between even, you know, written codified law and just culture. In fact, uh, if you the, the sort of philosophical definition of law is caveated by the fact that it cannot, uh, it cannot actually be a law if it's not generally observed and taken seriously by the population uh, that it is intended to apply to. So there's, there's not um, a completely separate relationship between written law and cultural norms. However, I do think that writing laws down uh, has an effect of essentially kind of interrupting the interplay between people and their environment in the real time that takes place. Cause that's how I would essentially describe culture. Uh, whereas written law is an attempt to kind of 
um, to kind of, as you say, formalize uh, a society's customs. And while I don't think that's entirely bad, I do think that there are some dangers to that that need to be recognized, uh, such as the fact that the generation which wrote that law down had a certain set of experiences and situations which led them to do so. And, excuse me, it's very likely that the following generation will have a different set of experiences and circumstances. And so they may interpret that law in a very different way. And the language does not change. So a lot of people, I think a lot of legal philosophers uh, have a definition of law, which very much includes this uh, this need to reassess and reevaluate, you know, there's a human element to it. And I do think that that's uh, a, a much wiser way of seeing it. But at the same time, you can't get past the fact that just having that static language creates a kind of, um, you know, a momentum of its own. There's no question that language is a fundamental factor in laws or cultural customs. I mean, the first example that I could think of that that maybe made it necessary to, to write them down is when you have outsiders that are being integrated into the culture that might not speak the same language. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, most of us know about uh, the famous uh, Hammurabi's Code of Laws, which was one of the, I think, it, as far as we know, it's the earliest uh, kind of official legal document that archaeologists have uh, unearthed, and it comes from ancient Babylon, Hammurabi being one of the emperors of Babylon. And Babylon, of course, was an empire. It was a very cosmopolitan uh, empire, and it included uh, many ethnicities from regions of the world which were you know, conquered and brought into the fold. And so uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, the, a certain kind of um, multiculturalism, for lack of a better word, is, is I think, one of the elements that makes laws essential. Yeah, more specifically, I think that ultimately written laws end up being sort of the mechanism by which power is applied, at least hierarchically in, in societies. So if you're taking that as the basis, then the laws should represent the spirit of the people that the laws are meant to govern. So We know that the effects of the laws are bringing about the intended purpose if the native population is thought to be flourishing. And that sounds like somewhat of an arbitrary definition, but I really don't think that it is. I think you could come up with a pretty clear definition of human flourishing. And I I think that in, in this case, it would be represented by the maintenance of a particular cultural continuity through time. So like through language, through genealogy, through land retention. So if, if your culture can retain all of those things, I would describe that as a as a culture that's flourishing. And insofar as you have written laws, the laws ought to be preserving the culture. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I generally would say that I agree with that. The only point I would make is that to the extent that the written law is uh, kind of rigid and to the extent that it does not, represent the sort of will of the people and what their actual culture is, um, you know, that's a problem. And I think that written law kind of makes that possible. 
Whereas leaving a law up to, you know, mechanisms of culture to just kind of have it be something which is organically uh, determined in, uh, I mean, there is plenty of precedent in, in sort of hunter gatherer societies, for instance, I mean, even some of which exist today where law is a, is a much more kind of fluid. Uh, it's like a process, you know, they, they, they practice law through through trials and through discussions and kind of collective processes of arbitration, rather than referring to uh, written words, which again, as we discussed, have a, a kind of a uh, uh, an inherently conservative quality to them, in the sense that they uh, they inhibit people's capacities to uh, cater to to their circumstances. Yeah, you know, this is reminiscent of the distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism back to the sola scriptura idea where the the Protestants take the Bible word for word as it's written without the possibility of evolving their interpretation of the actual words. So I think that uh, written law is something like that. And I think that the, the way you get around that, at least through the form of governance, is to have not necessarily a totalitarian or authoritarian figure or or a strong man but but or even a tribal chief you know just some somebody who can overrule the established order when necessary for the good of the people that are living in the community yeah and i mean i think we can see that um a lot of the systems of government that we are familiar with especially those which came around in the post-industrial era are kind of an attempt, I think, to um, to to wrestle with some of these issues of, uh, you know, what is the proper role of representation and power, and I, I think it's no coincidence that a lot of those forms of government and law came about in the post-industrial era because it was an era of uh, increasing in technological change and transformation, and increasing change in modes of communication, and. I think that that led to a situation where the kind of culture of every generation was becoming less and less constant, you know, as changes, as the pace of change was increasing, what it meant to have uh, a, a kind of a reliable set of assumptions and realities before a given generation, you know, that changed. And I think that, um, you know, as the system centralized and became further separated from individual human beings and from kind of social and cultural processes, you know, we began to craft centralized institutions in order to attempt, I would argue, to to address some of these things. Yeah, I think it's fairly obvious that written law can't be something that's just completely stagnant over time. If I was designing an ideal society, I would want to design it as close to like natural biological systems as it possibly could be. So I think the most obvious way to do that would be making sure that it could evolve and incorporate external elements over time, just like all other biological processes. At that point, again, you, you need sort of a, let's, let's call it a strong character to, to protect the population from instances of market failure where he could act in a decisive and time-sensitive manner to override whatever system of governance you have. 
because again, j- just like in economics, there's this idea of Goodhart's law where any statistic that can be optimized for will be. So then you sort of get the same thing in bureaucratic institutions as well. I mean, we see that now in the United States and I'm sure, I'm sure in every government you see something like that, you know, but again, that, that's just another reason why you would need a strong figure who's able to, to override the system at times. Right. And of course the, the underlying assumption therein is that the strong figure has the intentions you want him to, uh, which of course, you know, there, there are some, some obvious risks to an approach like that, that we can, you know, we don't have to look very far back in history to, to, uh, to see some of those. But of course, I, I mean, I think really the, the recurring issue with all of this, and I'm really glad that we um, kind of our first concept-based episode that we did was about scale, because I'll refer to it constantly over and over again. It just all comes down to scale, uh, you know, to the extent that this figure or person or entity, government, whatever it is, has the legitimate trust and confidence of the people that it's claiming to represent, uh, I think it, it stands a pretty good chance of, of being effective. However, uh, to the extent that it, the intentions are not um, you know, forthcoming, it's, uh, it's essentially you know, power, codifying power in that formal way is a, uh, it's a, basically a recipe for uh, an undesirable result, I would say, a result that is not uh, explicitly stated when formulating these systems. Right. It, especially in the West, we see, we see this now. Just because laws are written down doesn't actually mean that they're going to be followed or interpreted honorably by a judiciary or even in a democracy. So, like, Or even think- in any kind of a moderately reasonable way. <laughs> They're like a mechanism to legitimize, you know, power that the people in power can point to and say, here, you know, we have this to back up what we're doing. Uh, but when it gets to a point where, you know, you've got uh, just an entire industry of legal professionals whose job it is to, you know, deconstruct to the point of absurdity these these so-called laws and, and kind of interpret them um, in whatever selective way they they choose um, it really sort of if you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation please subscribe to the cartography podcast at patreon.com